General Orlando B. Wilcox needed the impossible. Newly minted in his post as the military commander for the Territory of Arizona, he rightly saw what had unseated his predecessor. Colonel August Cowd said never really been that popular because everyone thought he had not cracked down hard enough on Apache raiding. This judgment might have been a little unfair, as we've seen Couts had been smeared in the press by other heavyweights, but the fact of the matter is that the perception had got him ousted from the gig. As the new guy on the job, Wilcox naturally sought to avoid a similar fate. Which brings us once again around to the impossible. The problem was Apache raiding. But with most bands rounded up at San Carlos, the Apache who were doing the raiding were the ones that had fled south into Mexico. As long as they were around, the people in southern Arizona could not rest easy at night. So Wilcox decided to go with a bold plan, one that could have potentially blown up in his face. Instead of marshalling the troops, he tasked a subordinate with what seemed like a ludicrous assignment— it was time to convince Geronimo and Hua to come into San Carlos. Voluntarily. And the results of that crazy plan is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 72, Back Again. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we saw the great exodus from the San Carlos Reservation. As John Clum threw a tantrum and quit his job when he couldn't get his way, Geronimo fled after a drunken mistake, and the Chihenis fled with the aim to once again settle at their beloved homeland at Ojo Caliente. What's remarkable is that more Chiricahua bands hadn't also decided to jump ship with the Chihenis or Geronimo. Of course, the Badonkihis had pointedly not been invited by Victorio to flee with them, and Geronimo had fled for more personal reasons, but still, as we've seen, living at San Carlos was no walk in the park. And that's why we can only shake our heads at the fact that the U.S. government would continue to insist on rounding up the Apaches to a place that they really, really did not want to go. So let's start today with the Chihenni. As we talked about last week, this band, under Victorio and others, including his remarkable sister Lozen, had fled under the cover of darkness and made their way to New Mexico. Eventually, in November of 1877, they had been sent back to Ojo Caliente, their traditional homeland and where they really wanted to stay, but this was only a temporary situation Why the Army and Indian Bureau hashed out their ultimate fate. Here, they were the unwitting victims of American politics. Because, as I've hopefully impressed upon you in the last ten episodes or so, the Army and the Indian Bureau were not very simpatico. The two seemed to disagree over everything— and to reject any good ideas just because it came from the other side. If the army said left, the Indian Bureau said right. If the army said up, the Indian Bureau said down. And if the army said, let the Chehenni stay at Ojo Caliente, the Indian Bureau said, ship them all back to San Carlos. Okay, that might be an oversimplification, but only because the debate also raged on whether to send them to Oklahoma, 
which was basically the spot under the rug where the government liked to sweep tribes it did not want to deal with. In the meantime, the Chihenis were clearly banking on being allowed to stay at Ojo Caliente. After all, that spot of land was all they wanted, and then they would settle down peacefully and not cause a problem for anyone. They even began petitioning officials to be reunited with those Chihenis, you know, their parents, children, and siblings, that had not broken out of San Carlos. However, as in most things involving Americans, it all came down to money. Bigwigs in the army were able to successfully shoot down the idea of moving the band to Oklahoma, but Indian Commissioner Ezra Haight pointed out that the decision had been made to sell the public property at Ojo Caliente, and for budgetary reasons, the agency could simply not continue. Then another clash came between the army and the Indian Bureau. The cost of caring for the Jeheni had temporarily been saddled onto the shoulders of the War Department, which figured that it would take $12,000 a year to feed them adequately. And for the record, that equals roughly $330,000 in today's currency. But seeing as the army was supposed to be paid to fight Indians and not feed them, the War Department decided they were no longer going to foot the bill, which forced a decision from the Indian Bureau. And that decision, predictably, was to send everyone back to San Carlos. In June 1878, an Indian specter met with the leaders of the Chihenni, but was indifferent to their pleas, writing quite coldly that, quote, they told the same old story about this being the home of their fathers, end quote. So in July, and roughly nine months since the Chihenni had finally managed to come home, the army was ordered to help remove them back to San Carlos. As historian Dan Thrapp noted, the band was, quote, meshed in heartless bureaucratic processes determined to return them to the one place above all others they dreaded to go, end quote. It would actually take a few months to get everyone's ducks in a row, and the actual removal wouldn't happen until October. But by the time the march began, only 172 Chihenni went with them, just 20 of which were men. More than 300 had broken out from San Carlos, so where were the rest? Quite simply, they flown the coop. Victorio and the other leaders vowed never to go back into San Carlos, so they took their followers and went into the mountains. The bloody couple of years that followed would prove what a mistake it was to force the Jeheni to move. Victorio, who had been suing for peace since the mid-1860s, finally decided that enough was enough. The Americans would not let his people be, so he would not let them be. Historian and author Paul Andrew Hutton characterizes it as a no-win situation. In his telling, Victorio knew he couldn't beat the White Eyes, so the goal was just to poke them in the eye as hard as he could before achieving a warrior's death in combat. I'm not sure how much stock I put into that particular interpretation, but there is no doubt that he was doing all he could to make the Americans sorry that they didn't just leave him alone. Not to put too fine a point on it, but in 1880, a Mexican captive who had been released relayed that Victorio had told him personally that he would not surrender until the last of his men was killed. In what became known as the Victorio War, 
he would cut a swath across New Mexico and down into Old Mexico. Since this is a podcast about Arizona, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but his revenge-fueled marauding will have serious ramifications for everyone in Arizona. So here are some of the details. During part of 1879, there was some talk of Victorio settling at the Mescalero Apache Reservation, east of the Rio Grande, where some of his people had already found shelter. However, due to what might have been just a simple misunderstanding, Victorio would flee from these talks because he thought he was about to be forced back to San Carlos. And that should give you some idea of how much he detested the idea of being returned there. He would continue raiding and killing and would a couple times be rumored to be coming close to San Carlos in order to retrieve his wives, children, and fellow Chihene who were already there. During one of these close approaches in 1880, he and his company would set a trap for and then brutally slaughter a white mountain Apache chief named Baglish, or as we pronounce the settlement along US-70 named after him today, Bylas. The White Mountain Apache and Chihenny had not gotten along since they had been forced together at San Carlos, but Bylas was particularly hated by Victorio for stealing some horses from them on the cusp of their breakout in 1877. Also, if I'm not mistaken, he was also one of the scouts that had tried to track down Victorio's people after they had fled San Carlos. Bylas's whole family, maybe as many as 19 people, were murdered, which would sit long in the White Mountain Apache's memories. At his height, Victorio only commanded somewhere between 120 and 200 men, with some limited exceptions. But he felt like such an omnipresent threat that the entire 9th Cavalry was sent after him, along with companies of the 6th Cavalry from Arizona. But Victorio managed to be everywhere and nowhere at once, and forged a coalition that consisted of Chiricahua and Mescalero Apache, along with even some Lipan Apache and Comanches from Texas. And when he wasn't cutting his way across New Mexico, he participated in that old Apache standby, socking Mexico on the nose as hard as he could. In October 1879, he and his full force hit the Mexican town of Carrizal hard before heading back across the international border. This, however, turned out to be a bad move, as it motivated the governor of Chihuahua to task his cousin, a colonel named Joaquin Tarrazas, with making sure that the next time Victorio came down to Mexico, he would not leave it alive. But before we get into that... In May 1880, Victorio and his followers were ambushed by an American force, led, of course, by the invaluable Apache scouts, at a place called Palomas Creek. Hemmed in on all sides, Victorio would lose at least 30 men, although the number could be up in the 50s. He himself was wounded. The only thing that saved them were large rocks they could use as shelter. After nearly two days of fighting, the American forces eventually ran out of ammunition and were forced to withdraw. However, the fact was Victorio had been beaten, and this is widely seen as the turning point in his war of retribution. Finding himself hemmed in from all the cavalry officers running around, including the now-famous Buffalo Soldiers, Victorio would eventually fall back into Mexico and resort to short hops across the border into Texas. But down in Mexico is where Colonel Joaquin Terrazas found him. On October 14, 1880, 
Terrazas and his men caught up with Victorio and his followers at a place called Tres Castillos in east-central Chihuahua. After fighting it out for two whole days, the Apache ran out of ammunition and the Mexicans closed in. Maybe as many as 78 Apache were killed, though that is what the Mexicans reported and they were known to inflate numbers a little bit. Victorio's body was identified by a scar along his mouth and some broken teeth. According to the surviving Cheheni, nearly 70 had been taken captive, Victorio had killed himself in the last few desperate moments, rather than fall into the hands of the hated Mexicans. And so ended the life of one of the great Apache leaders who, right up until just a couple years earlier, had done all he could to live at peace on a U.S. reservation. I've said it before, and I will say it again. If the U.S. had just let them live at Ojo Caliente, the Jeheni would have stayed there and kept their heads down. Instead, the shifting sands of American Indian policy had led to more pointless conflict and violence. With Victorio gone, it's time to look at the other Chiheni that had been left behind. Remember that a portion had allowed themselves to be taken back to San Carlos in October 1878, led by the pacifist leader with the very unpacifist name of Loco. Fortunately, Indian agent Henry Hart found a new spot for them that was on some bluffs more than a dozen miles away from the agency headquarters. This position got them away from the malaria-ridden lowlands and gave them enough separation from the White Mountain Apache, whom they had feuded with during their previous tenure. But still, this was no idyllic garden spot. It was still hot and dry, and vegetation just did not grow there. And they were in a pretty precarious position. Since they had bolted once, the Americans watched the band like a hawk. The Chiheni had to secure permission to head into the mountains to hunt any additional food. And since the government fed them and food wouldn't grow where they were, they really had nothing to do but sit around and think about their sorry lot in life. It's not like the agency was in that grid of shape either. Hart continued to line his own pockets, and the reservation played host to a lot of shady contractors, dishonest employees, and other opportunists willing to get in on the graft. By 1879, word of the corruption at San Carlos started to leak out, and an investigator, John Hammond, was sent to look into things. His review found all the rumors to be completely true, and that Percival Stockman, Hart's business partner, was being paid by the agency, but was in fact just mining out on the reservation. While Hammond was taking testimony, however, Hart up and resigned in March 1879, though for reasons passing understanding, he was allowed to stay on until his replacement arrived. That wasn't the only weird thing either, as Hammond would suddenly call off his investigation for apparently no reason. Except you probably guessed the reason. That's right, the investigator decided to get his own piece of the action. Following Hart's resignation, Hammond stayed on at San Carlos, but spent a lot of his time inspecting mines, some of which were in fact on Apache land. In May 1879, he would travel to New York and Washington to line up potential investors for these mines. Back in Arizona, he conspired to shift the boundary of the reservation just enough to exclude a mine that Hart had sold to one Mr. Edward Knapp. 
Knapp would not be worth mentioning, except his name wasn't Edward Knapp. It was actually Edward Knapp Haight, son of the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Ezra A. Haight. By the end of the year, an investigation uncovered that Hammond had backed off on his investigation of Hart, most likely with Haight's blessing, which directly benefited the commissioner's own son. The scandal was leaked to the press by, guess who, the army, probably with a lot of barely held-in glee, and the Secretary of the Interior sacked Haight in late January 1880. For the record, this is just one of the many, many incidents that gave Indian agents such a bad rap. All this did not do any favors for the Apache living at the reservation, who were still suffering from harsh conditions and a lack of food. As you can imagine, the rations weren't exactly being distributed correctly. Rumors began leaking out that another breakout was imminent, though Hart did his best to report that everything was hunky-dory. But with Hart now on his way out, the army was actually asked to appoint a temporary agent. So they selected Captain Adna R. Chaffee, a distinguished Civil War veteran who was actually a decent man, which instantly was a change from the previous leadership. Cleaning house and making sure anyone employed by the agency actually, you know, worked there, he sought to turn things at San Carlos around. In an effort to give everyone a square deal, he allowed the Apaches to hunt in the mountains freely and to plant crops at various sites to support themselves. With things at San Carlos starting to get into some sort of shape, we have to turn now toward another dangling thread out there, namely the first breakout of Geronimo. Following his flight from the reservation in August 1878, Geronimo had joined Hua to participate in his favorite activity, herding Mexico. Occasionally, they would send out feelers for peace at Janos, like they had for decades, but somewhere, somehow, these talks always broke down and it was right back to raiding. Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley said that feelers were also sent to those living at San Carlos to see if maybe, just maybe, trying to come in there again was a good idea, but reports of malaria and other adverse conditions convinced them that staying in Mexico was probably for the best. At one point in the summer of 1879, Geronimo also seems to have gone on a raid through southern Arizona, with the usual repertoire of raiding, capturing, stealing, and killing. By the fall of 1879, Hua and Geronimo had made a base camp in the Carque Mountains, south of Hanos, from which they continued their raiding and pillaging. Then, in November, the camp received some surprising emissaries. Chiricahua, from San Carlos, bearing an official offer from the Americans. You see, back up in Arizona, General Orlando B. Wilcox, the territory's military commander, had heard about the peace feelers at Hanos and had had his crazy idea to send feelers of his own to see if they couldn't induce Hua and Geronimo to come back into San Carlos of their own free will and volition. He was backed up by the leaders of the various Cherokee bands who pledged that they would help in the effort and would talk with Hua personally. There were some high-level logistics to consider and permissions to be gained, but eventually Lieutenant Harry L. Haskell of the 12th Infantry was given the assignment to see it done. 
the brain trust he assembled to make this a reality would eventually include none other than Tom Jeffords, who just happened to be in the area inspecting some mines, and also Lieutenant Guy Howard, none other than the son of General Oliver Otis Howard, who had brokered the deal with Cochise. However, these were all Americans, so it meant one thing, they couldn't just slip across the border to parlay in an official capacity. That's where the Chiricahua came in. Two emissaries were equipped and sent across the border in late September 1879. One was Adis. He was a Nedney himself that had been living at San Carlos, while the other was a Badonkihi chief with a name that Phil's ripped straight out of a 1980s high school movie. Gordo. The two would actually have a hard time finding the base camp because all they had to go off of was rumors of Apache activity and some cultural knowledge. They wouldn't find Hua's people until mid-October 1879, but even then they found that Hua and Geronimo were not even there. During the late summer and early fall, the two warriors had actually fallen in with none other than Victorio, who at that point was just ramping up his war machine. Despite the fact that Hua and Victorio detested each other, they could get along well enough to carry out raids, which they did across New Mexico and Mexico for several months. Finally, though, after helping Victorio hit Carrizal, which set the dominoes falling for the Cheheni chief's ultimate fate, the pair split off to return home. And that's when they learned of the mission of Gordo and Adis. The pair had actually managed to persuade a few of the Nednies to head north toward Haskell's camp in Arizona, but the majority were waiting for Hua to return, and Gordo and Adis were eager to speak with them. At first, Hua rejected their offer out of hand, declaring, quote, I'm not going in for anybody. If they get me, they will kill me, end quote. Which, given his record, was a very justifiable fear. But Gordo tried to soothe the leader, reasoning with him by saying, quote, You gots lots of children, girl children, and I don't see why you run like a wild man. No sleep and food, no water. Why, you stay when you can go back to the white man's village. Nobody kill you. They give you food, and you not going to starve. Little children, you carry them around and get them killed, and like the coyote, crow eat you. Now you got a good finish. Nobody going to hang you. End quote. By the way, I apologize for the way that quote sounds, but that's literally how it's written in my sources. The conversation went late into the night, and at some point, the issue of malaria at San Carlos had to have come up. We don't know how Gordo managed to talk his way around that point, but Edwin R. Sweeney speculates that Hua may have reasoned that, if he didn't like San Carlos, his people could always come back to Mexico in the spring. Finally, in the early morning hours, Hua caved and told Gordo that he could lead him back to San Carlos. But Udley makes the great point that Hua and Geronimo weren't going into this thinking all would be sunshine and rainbows. No, they remained deeply skeptical of the White Eyes and approached this whole experience with mounds of skepticism and suspicion. And as we'll see, this was not an attitude that would foster peace and understanding. Also, in order to start the movement of their people toward the reservation, Hua did the most Apache thing possible. He raided a nearby settlement to steal enough horses and supplies to allow them to move. I think my favorite parts of 
all the attempts of the government to wrestle the Apache onto reservations is when they literally raid and pillage just to get there. Meanwhile, Haskell was twiddling his thumbs in the Cherokee Mountains and becoming more and more anxious. It had been literally months since Gordo and Adiz had been dispatched, and the only thing he had seen so far is a few Nednies making their way north. Getting very impatient, he said, bag it, and decided to cross the border with a small group and look for Juan and Geronimo himself. On December 12, 1879, so basically three months after sending out Gordo and Adiz, an Apache runner came into Haskell's camp to say that the Nednies were willing to meet with him but only if he came alone with no other soldiers. To his credit, Haskell did exactly that, taking only an interpreter. Unbeknownst to the lieutenant, however, a few days prior, the leadership of the Nennies had held a council to discuss the offer to return to San Carlos, and this group had decided, nearly unanimously, to agree to return to the reservation. I say nearly unanimously, because an unnamed Nedney leader protested the move and failed to get on board with the idea. His identity is nothing important, though, because, as the discussion grew heated, Geronimo whipped out his pistol and shot the dissenter dead, which ended debate. So, though Haskell reported the Apaches he met were suspicious and restless, they had already decided to go with him. Hua and Geronimo only asked one question. Would anyone have to go to jail if they surrendered. Here, you can almost hear Geronimo asking the question, seeing as the last time he had been escorted to a reservation, it had been in chains and he was destined to spend months locked up. Haskell, however, was full of good promises, saying that if the Nennies agreed to behave, they would be well taken care of and settled in a nice spot. The lieutenant even offered to stay with them until Hua, who was still very jumpy, felt comfortable. As part of the ongoing back and forth, Hua and Geronimo requested an associate named Nahilze be sent to them. Nahilze had agreed to go into San Carlos in 1877, and they probably wanted his personal attestation that he had not been severely punished for his raiding. Their friend met them at Camp Rucker in the Chiricahua Mountains in late December, and a more in-depth talk about the offer began. Here we find Geronimo doing most of the talking, due to Hua's very pronounced stutter. But the basic facts were Hua was still skittish about the whole thing, but was willing to try and make a go of working out a stable treaty. Probably easing a lot of fears was the presence of Tom Jeffords, who participated in the talks and renewed a lot of his associations among the Apache. Finally, Haskell was able to send word to General Wilcox that soon a little more than 100 renegades would be making their way to San Carlos. By January 7, 1880, Hua, Geronimo, and their band had reached the reservation. When they arrived, they set up their home near Nightshade's Jaconans. It's a little amazing that less than two years after fleeing, Geronimo wound up back on the reservation, ostensibly to live in peace. We know that's not his destiny, but how he got there is a story for another day. For now, let this just be a lesson in that's how quickly things change for the Apaches these days. Peace was always fleeting, but there was always talk of more and more treaties. And for their part, 
the Americans always clung to the hope that they could just round up everyone onto San Carlos and not have to worry about the Apache anymore. But since we've reached a state of temporary peace, that's as good a place as any to pause our narrative. Because, as you may have noticed, we have reached 1880. For the last 12 episodes or so, we have followed the thread of the Apache through their ups and downs in the 1870s. When we started, Cochise was still out there raiding, and peace with him seemed slim. 1870 was one of the bloodiest years of the entire Apache Wars, with Americans and Mexicans alike sending out large forces to try and eliminate the threat. But I hope that you have seen how events really played into one another, causing what seems to be a never-ending cycle of killing, peace feelers, misunderstandings, bad governance, and more raiding and killing. Apache raiding led directly to the Camp Grant Massacre, which led directly to the missions of first Vincent Collier and then General Howard, which led directly to the Chiricahua Reservation. Of course, what followed was Crook's brutal winter campaign, and then the Indian Bureau made the huge mistake of deciding that all Apaches should be grouped onto San Carlos. And boy, did that kick off nothing but a half a decade of trouble. First the Tonto Apache and Yavapai, then the White Mountain Apache were forcefully removed from their reservations that they had finally settled down on, and then the buzzards started circling down at the Chiricahua Reservation after the death of Cochise. In the mix here too is John Clum, whose personality drove a lot of the consolidation. And because Clum wanted control of pretty much everyone, that meant consolidating the Chiricahua and the Chehenis at Ojo Caliente onto the reservation at San Carlos, which led directly to the recent outbreak of violence that we've been talking about, Hua, Victorio, and, yep, Geronimo. But more than that, we can see the impact it had on the Chiricahua themselves. By 1880, there were only an estimated 700 Apache at San Carlos, and that includes all the bands gathered there. At this point, only Victorio and his followers were not on a reservation, but as I said, they could not have numbered more than 150. Just for comparison, in 1875, Tom Jeffords was handing out rations to nearly 1,000 Apache on the Chiricahua Reservation alone, not counting those at San Carlos or Fort Apache or Ojo Caliente. That means, since the consolidation at the agency began in the mid-1870s, the Chiricahua population had shrunk by roughly 400. And Edwin R. Sweeney says that when you take births into account, the number of those who didn't quite make it is actually closer to 450. Through a combination of forced marches, malnutrition, malaria, and warfare, the Chiricahua were steadily dropping like flies. As a case in point, by this time, the Badonkahi, which was Geronimo's band, had been virtually absorbed by their neighbors. This attrition will continue over the next few years, and will be another source of tension that will eventually lead the bands to keep on rebelling. But I want to leave the Apache question behind for now. After spending a decade with them, I think we need to turn our attention to some other matters before letting the 1870s finally come to an end. Because, believe it or not, Apache Wars were not the only thing happening. So, join me next week as we turn our attention back to the volatile world of politics. 
It's time to finally flesh out the man who was overseeing the ship of state through most of what we've talked about, and who has kept popping up again and again in our narrative as a supporting player. Governor Anson P.K. Safford had his hands full dealing with the Apache, but it turns out that none of that would be his legacy. Instead, if you've ever been to a public school in Arizona, you can ultimately think Governor Safford. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.